This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 143 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. Many clinicians are trained to focus on checklists and evaluations so we can walk into work knowing exactly what our protocols are. And while systems and processes are extremely important, we have to know how to use them flexibly. When we think about this in relation to cultural competency, we often think of eliminating biases in our evaluations and materials. But it goes much deeper than that. We also need to think about how we interact with coworkers, how policies are impacting our students, or even what's going on in the community that we're working in. When we're too rigid in the way we do things or the way we think about our work, we may unintentionally make students, clients, families, or even our coworkers feel unwelcome. That's why I invited Melanie Evans to the DeFacto Leaders podcast to talk about the concept of cultural competability, and how it can help teachers, leaders, and therapists 
think about cultural responsiveness. Melanie is an ASHA certified bilingual pediatric speech language pathologist licensed to practice in Texas and Oklahoma. She's also the founder of Pediatric Speech Sister, whose mission is to assist other speech language pathologists on their cultural competency journeys and bring more inclusion in the field. Melanie dedicates her career to serving Black and Latinx populations and closing the academic achievement gap. In this conversation, Melanie shares how professionals can better support Black and Brown children, what the school-to-prison pipeline is, and some reasons it's persisting, why being culturally responsive is a journey and not a set of rules, how we can read the room and ask better questions when working with both clients and coworkers, and what cultural compatibility is and how teachers and therapists can apply it to practice. Before we get going, I wanted to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program that helps related service providers design services that support executive functioning in K-12 settings. As you will learn in this conversation, there's so many layers to the cultural responsiveness conversation. We also discuss things like the school to prison pipeline or even discipline policies and how they impact students. And so there's a lot to this conversation, a lot of different populations that we need to think about. But one thing we can do that's going to address at least one of the issues that comes up is put programs in place that support students' ability to problem solve, self-regulate, plan for the future, so they can fully benefit from their educational experience, be successful in school, and eventually be ready for a vocational setting, as well as all the other things that you need to do in day-to-day life when you are an adult. Providing high-quality instruction and intervention is just one piece of the puzzle, but it is a very important piece. And that's what I address in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Melanie Evans. Today, I am joined by Melanie Evans, a bilingual SLP, also known as Pediatric Speech Sister. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Yes, Karen, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Yes, me too. I know there are so many topics that I want to get into with you today. So I thought we could start off by having you share. Um, I know that in our conversation before, you shared some things about where your career career started and what you're doing now. So I'd love to have you start at the beginning and and share um, just, you know, where you started and what you're doing now. Oh, yes. Okay. I'll try to um, put it, give you the Reader's Digest version. Yes. (laughs) So um, basically, I started my career as a speech language pathologist as a broadcast journalism major. So when I got into college, I signed up to do broadcast journalism. And that was really my passion and what I always wanted to do. I wanted to be like the next Oprah. My parents looked at me. Of course, I wanted to go to one of the most expensive institutions ever in Washington, D.C. from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So they looked at me and they said, Melanie, we need you to choose a field that you'll that you know for sure that you'll get a good return on your investment. Mm-hmm. So I said, OK. Um, and in my orientation class, 
the chair of the speech pathology department actually came and started talking about speech pathology. And I said, okay, that seems like it'll be a cool field. So I went ahead and changed my major to actually organizational communications. Mm-hmm. My minor is in speech language pathology because they took it out as a major program at that time. Well, I started taking the phonetics class. It was the phonetics class that made me really actually fall in love with it. I did really well with the phonetics class. And I think that this is what I was meant to do this whole time because I was led on a path of education Mm -hmm. and that's how I went more so in the education sector rather than medical or even technology, AAC. And um, yeah, so I got to hang out in Chicago. So I know that that you're pretty close by Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got to hang out in Chicago for a whole summer um, for the United Negro College Fund. And I was a fellow, the education reform fellow there. And I got to really realize a lot of the disparities that exist in the education system in 2016 specifically. I don't know what it was about 2016 for me, but the opportunities that I was attracting really just shed a huge light on the disparities. Mm-hmm. So not only was I hanging out in Chicago, but I also got a chance to volunteer in New Orleans. And um, we talked about education and even the prison industrial complex. So that was more or less my path. I took a gap year, came back in 2018. I worked in hospitality. And if anyone here has worked in hospitality who has a service heart, it's very hard to think about people who, <laughs> I don't want to throw any shade on people, but I was getting I was getting yelled at for not having like water bottles in the room. <laughs> And I'm thinking about, oh my yeah. gosh, oh my gosh, sleeping outside at Union Station right now on the ground who would love water bottles, you know, whatever. Yeah. So um, that made me rush back to graduate school really quickly. That was my catalyst, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so since then, I went through graduate school at Howard University. And then, boom, 2020 happened during my last year, the year I was supposed to graduate. Mm-hmm. I already had the pediatric speech sister account that was just supposed to be my business page. I went to ASHA with it and got nice contacts and networked there. I really didn't have much of a vision for it until COVID-19 happened. Shortly after the shutdowns happened, George Floyd happened. Mm -hmm. And it's always been my passion to talk about Black and Latinx children and how speech pathologists can help them from a communication standpoint. So I went ahead and put out a post that talked about five ways to support Black and Latinx children in the clinical and education setting. And Karen, the account blew up. Yeah. The account blew up. The post blew up. People were really becoming becoming allies. So that was very empowering for me um, as someone who this is something that I think about all the time and who's a passion. It's a passion for me. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yes, that's really when the true pediatric speech sister was born. And this is where I am now. So now I'm really technically three years, three and a half years in as a certified speech pathologist. And I've been doing consulting work as a cultural responsiveness consultant. I have my own podcast, my own podcast network talking about cultural responsiveness and really interviewing our colleagues who come from multicultural groups, even not even just race, Karen, but yeah. being neurodivergent, people who have different disabilities. I'm so thankful I was able to bring people from the deaf and hard of hearing culture on mm-hmm. and um, be able to have interpreters on the show so that way we can communicate effectively. So uh, 
really who knows what's going to happen next, but I have a lot of big visions and plans and I'm so excited to be a part of this field. Yeah. Wow. So as we talked before, I just think that's just like the fact that you started that, you know, just right, right away in your career and started these other side projects. I just looking back, I wish I would have done more of that. I know I was, I was in school, so I was doing something, but there's just, yeah. I mean, there's just so much you can do where you don't realize that, oh, I I started this account and you were just sort of creating this asset that has just grown into something. So I, before we, there's, I have so many questions about all of that, but I'd love to know what were the things that you shared in that post? Oh, yes, of course. So the first thing I talked about, and I don't have it up with me, but um, mm-hmm. after this, Karen, maybe I can share with you. Yeah, here. let's link, we'll link freebie. to it in the show okay. notes after, but yeah. Yes. yes, it's actually a freebie. Um, But the first thing I will say that I mentioned was considering their unique challenges. Mm-hmm. That is something that we don't consider a lot um, as speech pathologists. I, you know, we do, we might be working in Title I schools mm-hmm. and, you know, we see it, right? Like it's in our faces, but yeah. I think that if we're not from that particular culture, it's hard for us to really understand, wait a second, maybe this parent is in the IEP meeting already yelling at me or already on defense, not because I'm a bad clinician, yeah, because her lights just turned off, mm-hmm. or not because I'm a bad clinician, but because her child was already kicked out of school so many times or she, yeah, generational trauma and all of these things. So we're not looking at the background. A lot of times we can be um, not just ethnocentric, but really just, it's hard for us to look at the other people's shoes because we love our job so much also. Yeah. And all we want to do is help. Right. Um, so, so that's the first thing is putting ourselves in their shoes, considering their unique challenges. Of course, choosing culturally responsive and inclusive treatment materials. We've all heard the term or the phrase representation matters. That's become a buzz mm-hmm. since, especially since 2020. And unfortunately in the field, it's not very representative. Mm-hmm. So the way that we can make, bring the representation into our clinical spaces is by making sure that we have books, making sure that we have materials. And that goes to the next point when we're talking about the evaluation stages, oh, making yeah. sure we're really taking a detailed case history and not just the basics of, oh, well, what's your medical history and what types of activities do you do in the home? But really, what traditions do you like to honor? Asking those specific questions to make sure that one, of course, you're building a relationship with the families, with the multicultural families, but also so that you're asking them those specific questions and set a stance to where you really want to learn something new. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guilty of this too, Karen, where I act like I know everything and <laughs> the culture responsive speech pathologist. I do this. I dream about this stuff. Yeah. And sometimes I think I know all that there is to know, but We just simply don't. And so that's why I say cultural responsiveness is a journey, not a actual cultural competency is a journey, not a destination. Uh, Because I think a lot of us check off boxes like, okay, I take my DEI training every year. I do everything I got to do. I know everything, but really we are always constantly learning and growing. So that brings me to cultural humility. Um, That's another one that I really stress on is cultural humility and just making sure that we are taking ourselves out of the equation 
looking at the bigger picture. What are we really trying to accomplish in our therapy spaces? Yes, of course, we want to make sure that we're reaching those treatment targets and getting those goals and hopefully even getting them off the caseload so we can Mm -hmm. graduate them, right? But um, I personally, for my own personal mission, just in this world in general, is bringing cultural harmony amongst ourselves. And people go through so much trauma in the education system and in the healthcare system. And so since on the intersections of them in education and in healthcare as an educational speech pathologist, when they come to me, I want them to feel so cared for. I want them to see the difference and see that it's not all bad. We are not all bad. It's not all bad. And that there's a possibility to heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many things there. I mean, especially with the first one where it's you, you have this meeting plan with the parent and they come in and, you know, you think, why didn't they show up? Why were they late? Why are they why are they acting the way that they're acting? And you just, if you didn't experience the same things that they did towards the school system, maybe you had a really good experience or your kids have had a good experience. Just, I mean, there's, I've seen people and it it is really easy to kind of get in your, like, let me check all my boxes and do my evaluation. And, you know, here's what I expect to happen at this meeting. And just to know that there's so many other things that probably happened to that person before they got there to your meeting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. There, there are so many things I'm thinking about right now. Um, I'm thinking about one specific child when I was in Houston, and this is an African-American family, mm-hmm. really educated. I, I think that they actually worked for the school district. Mm-hmm. And the child, of course, speech pathologists aren't authorized to diagnose autism, but the child had all of the symptoms that I've seen personally, mm-hmm. um, children with autism. Well, the parents were in denial about it. And not only were they in denial, but they were also rejecting testing. Mm-hmm. And the teacher, the kindergarten teacher, really was going outside of her scope. And she was looking online how to do different occupational therapy activities. Yeah you know, in the classroom and different speech therapy activities in the classroom, just things that are completely out of her, her scope of practice. And she is exhausted. She's yeah. a kindergarten teacher with 25 other students to, to tend to. Um, and so one of the things that the parents said to me and why they were apprehensive was that they just did not want their child to be labeled. They did not want their little black child to be labeled in the public education system. They didn't want that to follow them through the rest of their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told them, and I said, I I get that. I understand that. At the same time, these are the things that we really are seeing from a professional perspective. And trust me, you are talking to the right one. I don't want your child labeled either. I don't want them to have this label on them either, but this is an opportunity for your child to get the services that they need. So that way they're not held back because after kindergarten, he's supposed to go to first grade. And they start getting more hands off the more the children get. So um, unfortunately, you know, at first the the parents were like, okay, well, if it's just for speech therapy, we can evaluate for speech therapy. 
And of course, we were going to evaluate for speech therapy, but the papers that they were supposed to sign off on said that they that he could get tested for behavioral testing and all those yeah, things. Yeah, the the domains, all that they saw all of that. I've had that happen before too, where they see special ed across the top and they're like, whoa, no right. way. Yeah, they pulled out, they pulled out mm-hmm. so um, and you know, hopefully, I guess from that perspective, and something that came to my mind is we can't be superheroes. We can't, sadly, we can't change someone's perspective. Just like how in our personal lives, we want certain mm-hmm. people to change in our personal lives, but we can't. We just can't do it all. And hopefully, other people or other situations will fall on their path to where they'll feel more open to changing for the better good. So um, that's one side of the coin. I also saw the other side of the coin where the child was, I don't know if I told you this before, but the child was Hispanic Mm -hmm. and they wanted to diagnose him with autism. He had different behavioral challenges, but he also came to school with a lot of trauma. His uh, both of his parents passed away and he was very mm-hmm. cool about this, at least in speech therapy, both of his parents passed away and he um, stayed with his grandmother and there were a lot of children at their house. And um, he was also outcasted by his peers because he was different. He was, he was just a different kid. Mm-hmm. Fifth grade, he was in fifth grade and he struggled reading And sometimes he would be stubborn and have an attitude. I didn't really see a lot of that in my class, but other people experienced that. And so the teachers were like, well, let's get him diagnosed with autism and put him in the special ed classroom, the self-contained classroom. So I was already against it, but, you know, we just go through, we go through the processes. Right. When I go to pick him up for his reevaluation I walk in, I see his fifth grade teachers teaching and it's a big classroom of the students. And I'm like, where's the kid? And it's like the whole classroom turns and looks at him, right? So it's like, it's like a movie. You're walking into a movie of where the whole classroom just turns and looks at him and he is sitting and rocking. But I'm like, honestly, I would be doing anything to calm myself too. If I felt the energy of that classroom was outcasting me yeah. and looking at me like a weirdo. So Um, I did get to talk to the special education director and I told her, I'm like, I gotta, I'm sorry. I gotta advocate for this kid. I know that we are trying to push things along, I guess, um, and get, but there's no way if he goes to the self-contained classroom and he's about to go to sixth grade, he's going to be in there forever until he graduates. And he's not, he's not going to actually get the help he needs. It's like a demotion for him. He doesn't necessarily need the self-contained curriculum um and so from there thankfully she changed things and I was actually able to get things changed how special education was done at that particular school and so he was able to go to the self-contained classroom during certain moments but in other moments he was able to be with general education so it became a win-win situation yeah that's great and I think that's so important how sometimes people are like if it's even from the leadership, they're kind of like, well, you know, sometimes you have a a district where it's all about like, just get them out of the classroom, you know? And then sometimes you have a district that's like, well, we're going to include everybody. And you really have to look at what is the least restrictive environment for this particular person. And we need to offer a continuum because if you always do one or always do the other, it's not going to be individualized. Like, I think people forget that it's not about, you know, what your whole 
philosophy is. It's about what is the plan that's going to meet this person's needs. Exactly. So I would love to hear about your experience um, in Chicago, because as we talked before, I'm also in Illinois in a completely different part of the state. I'm in the, I was more in a, a small town. So I did see, you know, there was rural poverty there, but it's different in, in inner city. So I, I'm curious what kinds of things came up for you there that were, you know, unexpected or just, just that you learned. And I know that we talked a little bit about school to prison pipeline, and that is something where, you know, I went through a whole speech pathology program, bachelor's and master's and a special education doctorate. And I really didn't learn a lot about that. I mean, it was sort of loosely talked about, but not directly as, not as directly as it probably could have been. And so, you know, I think that that's something that needs to be talked about more. So I'd love to just hear about what, like what came up for you there and what you learned about during that experience. Well, um, thank you for that question, because I'm thinking about how you said, I mean, you have your doctorate in special education and the fact that the school to prison pipeline isn't talked about much yeah, uh, is shocking. Um, so, you know, that that's something I'm kind of recovering from. Yeah, <laughs> like shocking, yeah. But I will say um, when I was in Chicago, the biggest thing was just the vast differences um, between areas and between mm-hmm. in the areas. So I was staying on Halstead Avenue, which is by the University of Illinois, Chicago's campus. Um, very nice area. We can go running out there and see the beautiful skyline of Chicago. It was like a dream. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I go and I take all of the public transportations to get to Roseland, which is, um, if you're familiar with the Chicago Chicago area listening to this, it's in the deep 100s on the red line. And when you get off, you just really completely see the difference. The infrastructure mm-hmm. is torn down. The um, The grass is just overgrown. You know, it's like the city just hasn't checked it out for months compared to where I was staying at UIC. Um, I take the walk, you know, so we get off of the bus to take the walk to school or to the campus. And sometimes we would walk even alongside some of the students and I'm scared I'm going to get bit up by whatever lives in the grass. Yeah. Uh, You know, and there's not necessarily sidewalks either. So you really are walking like on the edge of the street. So that was the first thing that was shocking for me. The second thing was really just the reality that the education system is a business. That was the biggest thing that really stuck out to me, Karen, because I'm thinking about the kids just from a humanistic perspective. And when it came time, this is a charter school, by the way. So when it came time for count day and the children might be out because they're sick or whatever the case may be. And the founder had teachers go and pick the kids up and bring them to school to make sure that they were there for count day. So that was very um, disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, let's, let's manipulate the data so that we look good. (laughs) Yeah. That, that was very shocking and disgusting to me. And also the people I worked with, I was working in admin. So um, they were also just like, yeah, I mean, this is just kind of how it is, but it's not necessarily good. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the leadership level, I can tell that they were really just looking at it as a business. I mean, even just small things like a child trips and falls down the stairs and she just kind of looks at the kid 
and expects the teacher to handle it, but doesn't, you know, actually have the heart for it. It's just like, I mean, this is a business. Let's, let's get the money. I wanted to take a break here to talk about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program that helps related service providers design services that support executive functioning in K-12 settings. So right now in the conversation, we're talking about things like the school to prison pipeline, and there's a lot to solving this issue, but one of those things is making sure that kids have access to high quality instruction and intervention. And we also need to think about how we address things like discipline and consequences when students are showing behaviors. And part of understanding how to do that effectively in a way that provides consequences that are appropriate given the student's skill level, given the particular incident, among other things. Black and brown children do tend to be diagnosed with things like ADHD more than other students. So this is definitely a very important piece of the puzzle in understanding how to navigate the services as well as some of the policies. So to learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the conversation. School to prison pipeline didn't come up as much uh, surprisingly during that internship. It was actually when I was in New Orleans. Okay. It came up for me. Um, and it wasn't even brought up on a school to prison pipeline standpoint, except for the fact that my understanding of the school to prison pipeline and how the even the mindset mm-hmm. of bringing children up for prison. First of all, this starts all the way in preschool. Sadly, preschoolers are getting expelled um, for those minor offenses offenses. And sadly, it's coming from a racial difference, a racial gap. So, you know, research, I did research with Dr. Valencia Perry about this and research is even saying how white children are getting basically slaps on the wrist. They might even get suspended, but more so in-house suspension for certain things like cursing or bringing knives to school or bringing drugs to school. Whereas children, black children who maybe even yell or curse, which sometimes yelling is actually Black communication. It's just how we talk to each other. It's Mm -hmm. called loud talking, talking loud enough for the people to hear around us. Um, And they get kicked out and suspended and expelled. And on top of that, they might be going to schools in those inner cities where you have to get packed down even just to walk into the building. So if you can think about the conditioning that comes with that and the grooming that comes with that and really school isn't becoming a safe space in that way. You know, school should be a place, especially if the children are coming from those harmful environments or those ACEs, the adverse childhood experience environment, Mm -hmm. school should be a safe haven for them. And I worked in Title I schools where it really was a safe haven for them. The kids hate it when school was shut down for weather or whatever. Yeah. But sadly, that doesn't always happen. And so what they do is they skip school. They skip school, they get kicked out, they get expelled from school. They end up back in their communities where there's a lot of actual gang violence and everything going on. And then they get arrested and then they're put in prison. Yeah. School to prison pipeline. And so um, this, my understanding of the school to prison pipeline, Karen, was like that wasn't just isolated. It just became such a big exp- it came experience, yeah. experience plus research. 
Um, I got to do some research with Dr. Shamika Stanford in Washington, D.C., and so we got to hang out um, at the, they, we called them residents and not inmates, so we got to hang out at the um, the jail pretty much in Washington, D.C., and have class alongside them. It's called the, in, the Inside Out Program, and we talked about communication and the disparities with communication and how, for example, with Trayvon Martin, um, after he got murdered, his friend came on the stand who was Haitian and spoke African-American English. So she had these different dialects and, and also she was lower socioeconomic status. Well, the people who were defending, um, I can't even think of his name right now. What's his name? Trayvon Martin's murderer. I can't think of his name. Yeah, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Mark Ziminet. Mark okay. Ziminet. Something Zimmerman, but um, Zimmerman, basically whoever was defending him made her pretty much like a zoo, made her a zoo, talked really bad about her. And mm -hmm. I think he compared her to an animal um, while she was there on the stand. So just things like that obviously send a lot of rage and passion through me that makes me want to continue this work. Yeah, I mean, the question. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, it's, there's just so much to it with like, what, what, what actually starts the pipeline? I mean, I think that that's the big question. And, um, you know, whether it's just they're not in school, I think the thing that stood out to me with what you just said is the, the punishment, because obviously, in a lot of contexts, you want there to be consequences for things, but you want the consequences to be reasonable and and fair you know like it's if you're I mean that's even if you actually look at research with you know things like ADHD where yes they need consequences but if they're so harsh that they think like they get so um almost immune to it, it yeah. where it's it, their consequences are so harsh so that they think you know like why even try so it's not even that meaningful to them so, and obviously that's something that is, you know, there's huge disparities with, with certain diagnoses, you know, across, you know, racial groups and things like that. So, I mean, I think of that where it's the punishment, because to me, it's, if you start down that path, then that's going to impact the behavior. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that, I mean, I think that's, what's the really difficult, the really difficult question, um, yeah, uh, that's I definitely that's an area where I really want to learn more about. And I'm def I uh, definitely don't want to I, I feel like I need to pull in a lot of experts to talk about that at this point. Yeah, And I mean, I just think as communication experts, because I know that it's not always speech pathologists. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the teachers, but... it's the administrators, it's anybody who's interacting with those kids. Right. And I think that it's easy for us, especially adults have the biggest egos. And yeah. so the things I had to learn when working at Title I schools is you cannot have a power war with the children. You can't, because actually you will probably lose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. if you have a power war with the kids. And so um, I think that that actually makes you more effective um, if you take on that lens, you know, just I am not about to have a power war with this child. But I'm thinking about it even on a micro level where I've had speech therapy sessions where the child comes in with all of this behavior which if we think about behavior from a communication perspective, obviously, the not not even obviously, but the child is wanting attention. Mm -hmm. That's really just what he wants. He wants attention. He noticed when he's acting like this, 
you're attending to him, especially if you're yelling or whatever. These are the types of emotions that maybe he's asking for at home, but he's not getting. Mm -hmm. So he has to come to school and get that from his teacher. And on top of that, you know, students are looking around him, either egging him on or even maybe acting annoyed, positive or negative. At least he's getting attention. Yeah. And so (laughs) when I was in my graduate externship, I was trying to use the sticker charts and so, of course, yeah. my threat was, oh, well, I guess you're not going to get a sticker. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The sticker charts. I could go on about that. But yeah. 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 Like, uh, I would love to know your take on sticker charts, by the way. Yeah. Well, and and we can uh, we can get into that with uh, with your show. But honestly, it's this it's there's so many different things. One, obviously, if you have a sticker chart that's up in front of the class, displayed for everybody to see and certain kids never get their stickers yeah obviously they're not going to feel very welcome um Mm -hmm. and then also if it's so abstract that it doesn't mean anything to them and the real the real consequence isn't going to happen until later and they have a difficult time visualizing what that end thing is then the sticker chart is you're they're going to get exactly the reaction that you just got so Mm -hmm. um they work when people can visualize, can look at that sticker and in their mind, visualize what that means. If you have those internal abilities to do that, which is you know an executive functioning skill, then you're going to benefit from the sticker chart. But if you don't, then it's not going to meet, be meaningful and you're, you're going to need something different. And so to me, I'm always kind of like, well, it's sort of a universal design thing where it's, yes, yeah, some kids might be okay with this, but it's probably beneficial for all the kids to get mm-hmm. away and use something use something different so yeah there's that's a that's a big conversation that we in the uh the executive functioning and understanding consequences and time blindness and internal motivation it's it's all about that and those are all skills and i think that sometimes people think they're personality traits but there's yeah skills, you know and right. of course it, the consequence is important in that but it has to be reasonable and it can't be so severe that kids just, you know, become a, just desensitized to it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Because, I mean, even even myself, I wasn't necessarily a troubled kid, but I've gotten kicked out of classrooms before. And I really wasn't being that troubled. It didn't warrant me getting kicked out of the classroom. But teachers, sadly, when we have we have to also think about what the teachers are going through, they're, under, yeah. they're overworked and underpaid. Yeah. Oklahoma just had a teacher strike. I think it was last year where the teachers walked out. And I mean, it was kind of like a, and this, and this isn't a, this isn't even a political conversation. This is just really from the words of the teachers that I spoke to. Yeah. And they said when they went up to the Capitol to lobby for it or to protest and everything that they did up there, I don't know everything that they did. Um, it was kind of just when the governor was ready to talk to them, he's like, okay, so what do you need? <laughs> It wasn't really exactly met with enthusiasm or, hey, how can, you know, clearly there's an issue if all of y'all are walking out of the classroom to come all the way up here. Um, And so they did get a raise. They did end up getting a raise. It wasn't wasn't as much as they were asking for or what they really deserve for what they put up with and go through. Um, Oklahoma is number 49 as far as education rank goes in the United States. I don't know what, I don't know which one is number 50, but yeah, Oklahoma's 49, it's been 49 for years. So, um, but my thing is, well, if you're treating teachers like this, you really can't expect us to go up. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, it's really interesting that you bring up the, the lobbying piece because I was, I was, went to a, listened to a politician talk the other night and a a special ed administrator leader, you know, stood up in the audience and was like, do you know that we don't have, you know, we're missing this many special ed teachers and math teachers. And she listed all of these open positions that we have. And um, the response was, well, we need to pay teachers more. If if you pay teachers more, then they're not going to leave their positions. And and she said, actually, that's not what they say. That's not, it's, it's about respect. It's about getting what you need. And of course, salary is a part of it too. But I think that people want the, like, if you're, you're a politician and you, you're going through your talking points, you want your, these are my ways I'm solving the problems and it is easier to simplify it. It's like, of course we want teachers to make more money, but it's so much more than that. So, yeah. yeah. Um. So switching, I know that we're talking about the professional things, Um, You've been talking a lot about how this impacts students and families, but I'd love to talk about your experience as a professional in this field and, you know, in both the education, healthcare, speech pathology, like what are some things that you've experienced that people maybe wouldn't think of or like aren't aware of? Mm. The first thing that comes to mind is my past company that I worked for. And I was coming from schools and work environments in DC and Houston, um, which are both very multicultural, diverse places. And so I came back home to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm in the clinic. And I realized, first of all, I'm the only Black person in the clinic, the only Mm -hmm. Black person in the clinic, which, you know, besides, I think maybe two sets of clients who were Black who I saw. so that that was the first thing that was shocking for me. The second thing that was shocking for me was really just the lack of cultural diversity. It was a it was a, a clinic that served Spanish speaking people. Mm-hmm. However, I just didn't see a lot of actual effort done as far as being culturally responsive, not even just for the people who we worked with, but also for the colleagues. And mm-hmm. I think that that was the emphasis for me was where's the cultural response in this for the colleagues? And so I did have one other colleague who is a minority, she's Filipina. And when I was already feeling really tired and it's something about where you kind of feel like you're alone and you're not talking about it with anyone until she came to work and was like, yeah, you know, you guys, this is going to be my last Friday. And I'm like, what? Okay. So I'm not crazy. (laughs) So let me go talk to her. And long story short, I went to talk to her. And of course, a lot of it had to do with just being overworked and all of these things. And then also just little microaggressions and imposter syndrome and a lot of things that everyone goes through, but women of color really go through it on a different scale. It just, it really hits different. It feels very different. And so going through that in an environment where it was already isolating, you look around and you don't see anyone who looks like you, the culture is different because- Mm -hmm. My culture is very different from their culture, but there is no effort to at least try to integrate. So yeah. the biggest thing for me was, yes, you know, they were, they invited me to the lunch table. I was invited to the lunch table. The times where I did decide to go to the lunch table, I was met with microaggressions, mm-hmm. um, shocking comments like white face, black face comments as jokes, yeah. uh, comments about my hair 
you know, other things like that. And um, it really, Karen, it was haunting me in my sleep. So it was just going completely against my fabric, against my values as a person. Mm-hmm. And I ended up leaving that clinic. And so that actually became the birth of my cultural compatibility piece from a colleague perspective. So for anyone listening who doesn't know what cultural compatibility is, it's cultural humility and cultural com- competency put together. Mm-hmm. And so it's our ability to be humble while also using what we're learning in actual practice. And so we talk a lot, like what you were saying, we mentioned that a lot with the children that we're serving, the families that we're working with, but not a lot with each other. Yeah. And it was really shocking for me when my colleague left, she left, not only did she leave that clinic, but she left the field. Oh, she, wow. She left the field and she's just like, Too yeah, I have to pay off my student loans, but whatever. And here's all of my therapy materials that you could use for yourself. It, it was that bad. And I'm just like, you know, it's crazy because I talked to aspiring speech pathologists who are ready to leave the field before they even graduate. I think about myself who was three years in and was burnt out. I mean, I was yeah. my CF year, I was burnt out. Yeah. And I think my classmates who started exploring different careers. And so it goes back to the conversation about representation matters because yes, representation matters, but what are we doing to keep us in the field? <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, mm-hmm. So so that that's how it became, okay, let's think about this from a harmonious perspective. How can we actually communicate with each other? The interprofessional collaboration, yes, but really interpersonal communication, looking at each other, not only as colleagues, but as humans in our own unique experiences and learning to love each other for those unique experiences and learning to learn from each other for those unique experiences and integrating that so that way we can collaborate effectively. So these are research projects that are that are going to be happening, but the birth of that started with this clinic. So yeah, I hope that that answered. <laughs> yeah, it it did. And yeah. so here's the thing is that okay. I think of you know this this is there's a lot of speech pathologists that are listening to this and other people in special ed and I know that part of our our the way that we're taught is almost again the checklist mindset where it's like okay, so give me the prescriptive plan and things that I should or shouldn't say, but it almost sounds like it's, it almost seems like it's more of a practice rather than, you know, here's this list of things that you're supposed to do kind of a thing. I mean, would you say that that's accurate where it's almost more of a mindset and a practice because what might make one person feel comfortable and included could be kind of different. I mean, even within the same culture, I mean, would you say that's accurate? A hundred percent. It it definitely varies person by person. I think that the first step is, you know, there's always those steps, you know, when mm-hmm. we talk about cultural responsiveness, understand yeah. your biases, yeah. do research on their culture and everything right. like that. And then we have, yes, do that. That is exactly what you should do. That's very important. And at the same time, make sure that you're not generalizing too much. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at where it's like, if you get too prescriptive, then you're like, oh, well, this person wants me to, you know, this group of people wants me to to say this to them or something like that. Which... And then you risk being offensive. Yeah. So yeah. I've worked with, I've worked with Latin, Latin American families specifically who 
choose not to identify too much with their Latin American culture. And so Mm -hmm. I've made the mistake of approaching them like, hola, como estas? Mm -hmm. And like, I speak English. I prefer to speak English, you know? And so so that was the, that's the humility piece. Like, okay, I'm actually humbled. Um, I'm sorry that I just assumed that that was the best way to connect with you. And so um, that's why it's best to ask those intentional, powerful, inquisitive questions what language do you prefer? Do you need an interpreter? Um, questions like that. Now, that's interesting that I said that because I think about a parent who, um, they came from Jordan, so they came from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And she really wanted to learn English. Um, her child, who I was treating, spoke English. She was fluent in English. And he was another one of those behavior kids, just by the way. Another yeah. one of the kids, but they also had a lot of them and. Um, he didn't know that they that they immigrated here. He actually had no idea that they immigrated here. Um, mm-hmm. And he stuttered. And I'm like, well, that might be why. But that's kind of beside the point. Um, this parent really didn't want an interpreter there. She preferred for us to talk to her in English and just talk to her without the interpreter. Mm-hmm. And when I put myself in her shoes, I understand it's kind of from a lens of, I want to do this. I want to practice my English so bad. And I know that my needs help in knowing English is power in this country. So I'm going to do anything I can to do this. At the same time, I still brought an interpreter because one, of course, it's my job. I have to do that ethically. Yeah. (laughs) Interpreter. The second thing is, you know, I allowed myself to say certain things and her listen. And then I'd say, would you like for that to be interpreted? Mm-hmm. Um, because I would see it on her facial expressions that she didn't know what I was saying. You know, we're talking about an IEP here. Right. Lots of technical language that people who speak English may not even understand. May not even understand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so those are the little nuances when it comes to cultural competency that we have to just be careful about. But I think that the biggest lesson is being okay with making mistakes. Yeah. Take the risk and be okay with making mistakes. So like I said, but you know, when I try to speak Spanish to a family that has a Spanish last name, that was a mistake. That was me with good intentions and I made a mistake. And so now that's not failure, that's feedback. Okay, you know what? Let me ask them. And so when I do my introductory emails at the beginning of the year, I actually email in both languages. just mm-hmm. to be, And then however they choose to respond is how they choose to respond. And then- Then you kind of get some information there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah, because, and I, I mean, I think that some of the- you know, the training that they tell you where they're like, understand the, who who do you talk to in the family? Like who's making the decisions and, um, you know, what are the, I was just, you know, thinking about when you think about transition planning, even where it's what's, what's going to be the family structure after high school and just all of those different things where you kind of assume, well, these are the steps that people take and you can't really do that. <laughs> so Oh yeah. So many, I bet you could just go, we could go all day with different case studies of different examples of this, but, um, and I I know that you have on your podcast, I mean, you've had so many different guests from, you know, share their experiences. So 
where can people go to learn more about you, listen to your podcast or connect with you? Oh, well, thank you. So um, my Instagram is Pediatric Speech Sister. My YouTube is Pediatric Speech Sister Network. I also have a LinkedIn. I believe it's linkedin.com slash in slash Evans, Melanie, I'll have to send you that. Yeah, we'll link <laughs> they, to that. Or they can yes. probably find you. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And then that's also where you can see the show. So if you're not a YouTube yeah. person, you can also go to LinkedIn and check it out. Um, I also consider doing more lives on the Instagram platform. Um, So we'll, we'll see. But I'm around, yeah. you know, a lot of presentations in the works, too, that I'm excited to share with the audience. So wow. stay tuned. I'm a- I'm excited to see what you do with all of all of your projects and uh, and you know again I know we've talked about different different options and expanding your education and all those things so I'm excited to see what you do so thank yeah. you for being here with me today yes thank you so much for having me Karen and I'll definitely be sure that you know about the journey yes um, keep me in the loop <laughs> I will I will thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes where you can learn all of the places that you can connect with Melanie. And be sure to check out my appearance on the Pediatric Speech Sister show, which is also linked in the show notes. And finally, if you want to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, my program that helps related service providers support students' executive functioning skills, you can go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, if you have an idea for a guest or if you would like to be a guest on the show, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. If you found this episode helpful, then definitely share it with your friends or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. 
If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.